So last week, we launched a new series of messages called Nearest and Dearest. And it's the story of John's Jesus. And we discovered in the Gospel of John that John was Jesus' best friend. And he illustrates for us in this book how to have that kind of relationship with Jesus. And we're going to be pursuing that kind of relationship together in the coming months. And last week, the focus that John invited us to zero in on is it all starts with Jesus. It all starts with Jesus. That in fact, the most important thing about you is what you think about Jesus. The most important thing about you is what you think about Jesus. And so if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn to John chapter 2, the fourth book in the New Testament, one of the biographies, one of the gospels of the life of Jesus. And as we do that, let's pray together. Father, we bow in your presence. And we're so deeply grateful for your word. We pray because we're intrigued with this possibility of having you as our best friend, holding you in high regard, and yet having this intimate, deep relationship with you. So we pray that you would speak to us as only you can from your word. In Jesus' precious name, amen. I wonder how many people here have seen the show undercover boss. I think it's still running. And I think Debbie and I have seen that show uh, about three times. And my, the premise of the show is that they select a CEO or an owner of the business to get a sort of backstage look at his or her enterprise. And so what they do is they disguise this individual and then they get them uh, one of the jobs in the, pro- in the business, and they go in for a period of time, and they perform tasks, and they work alongside the workers who have no idea that this is the person. And they get a backstage look, and they're able to take corrective steps in their business that need to be taken, but as well, they typically find individuals that are working incredibly well that are working when the boss is not there in a way that's honorable and good, and they typically reward these individual employees. John chapter 2 is the first ever episode of Undercover Boss. And in this episode, Jesus goes to the temple, and the temple belongs to God. And of course, in no sense are we restricting Uh, God to one geographic location because scripture teaches us that he's omnipresent. But in a sense, the temple was seen as the headquarters of God on earth. And he's entirely in charge of how that enterprise runs. He has an extensive, extensive policy manual. And in the policy manual that he wants all of his employees to read and be familiar with, and most importantly, to put into practice in their life, we find in the manual very practical instructions about how the owner of the business wants things to run. In fact, in the manual, there's instructions on how to, the employees are to run their personal life, their family life, their business life, how to generate revenue, how to manage revenue, how to spend revenue, how to do customer service appropriately. In fact, in the manual, 
every decision in life is ultimately addressed in the policy manual that we call the Bible. And so God comes to earth and his name is Jesus Christ and he heads to the temple and he gives absolutely no warning that he's coming. So none of the people that are working at the temple know that the boss is coming. Because you know what typically happens uh, in most of those environments? When the boss is coming, everyone runs around, cleans up, dusts, vacuums, whatever the case may be, because the boss is coming, and they know the boss will typically come with an encouraging eye, but also an evaluative eye, and so they want to make sure things are just right. But Jesus comes undercover. And he has an encounter with the people that are running the temple, the religious people. Now, to be fair, there is a form of religion that is pure. The scripture says this in James chapter 1. It says that pure religion, the one that God accepts, is when we look after orphans and widows who are in distress and then to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And so when you do things in a biblical manner, that's pure religion. But human religion, on the other hand, is exclusively bad. It's us adding or trying to add to what God has done and what God has said. We're trying to modify what he said. We're trying to do things to impress God rather than, as the scripture tells us to do, humbly obey him. And so the undercover boss, Jesus, steps into an atmosphere that we're going to discover is thoroughly laced with bad religion. And he's going to teach us some things. And so let's begin reading, actually in verse 13 through 17. But before I read those verses, which talk to us about worship, there's two ways to look at a passage like this. And if you know anything about this passage at all, you might be looking at it and you're thinking to yourself in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, wow, how could they have gotten this so wrong? How could they have gotten so far off the rails? Shame on them. I'm so disappointed in these people. I can't believe they're this bad. That's one way to look at it. The other way to look at this passage is, is if they got this stuff that wrong, it might be wise for me to humbly say, where might I be getting it wrong? In fact, God, would you search me and see where my heart is in relationship to these truths and see where my heart is in all of these things? And I would invite you to look at this passage in that second way. So beginning in verse 12 of John chapter 2. After, Jesus, after this, Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and in the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. And so he made a whip out of cords and drove them all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Jesus is angry. And he is angry for a period of time. We don't know how long he was angry for. 
I don't know how long it takes to make a whip, but it takes some time to make a whip. He takes the time to make a whip, and he drives them out. Imagine how that would go viral on social media today. Everybody would have had their phones out filming this. You know, and it would be on CNN. Jesus showed up at such and such church here in town. And pretty soon, all the people and the animals were running out of the building. And so I'm kind of glad they didn't have cell phones and YouTube back then. Then it says, to those who sold doves, he said, get out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. It's important to take note of when this took place on the timeline, because it's Passover time. And I think there's something significant about the fact that it's Passover time, because Passover is one of three big festivals that the people of God celebrated. It was a special time of year, which typically takes place even to this day at the end of March or at the beginning of April, and it varies a little bit from year to year. And it's a time where they come together to honor the Lord. And timing of this is very important. And really what they're doing at Passover is they're looking back in history and they're celebrating God's deliverance from slavery in Egypt. Now remember the setting if you know this story at all. In Egypt, they're enslaved to the Pharaoh and there's a man who is ruling over them ruthlessly. He has total financial and spiritual control over their lives. So they're not allowed to live life as it should be lived, and they're not allowed and not free to worship God the way they would like to. God shows up in that setting in Egypt, and he delivers them. And one of the reasons, one of the primary reasons that the text talks about in Exodus is they're released so that they can go and worship God the way they've been told to worship him. So they're free to worship him. They're free to return to Jerusalem, the home that they had been intended to live in and to pursue life there. And so Passover is them remembering and saying thanks to God for delivering us and allowing us to worship properly. In John chapter 2, this all unwraps here in Jerusalem. In the place designated for them to come, the temple, to come and celebrate his presence and to worship him. It's very important to notice that we don't build houses for God. We don't build a house for God. We build houses for God's people. Sometimes people have this mixed up idea that the temple or the church is built so that God can have a house. God doesn't need a house. We need a house. In fact, it says in Acts chapter 17 that God does not live in temples made or built by human hands. And we talked about this last week in chapter 1. God is the maker, literally, of all things. He doesn't need us to make him anything. And a building is simply like this, is simply provided so that God's people can come together, congregate together, in his presence together. And the idea in the Bible is that we're all part of the family of God. We're called the children of God. We come together. God is our Father. And we need a house so that God, because God likes to hang out in his house 
with his kids together. Bearing in mind that God is not limited to one geographic place because Scripture teaches in Psalm 139 that God is omnipresent. The center of our faith is a person. It's not a place. It's not a building. The epicenter of our faith is a person, not a place. And so Jesus is God, the undercover boss shows up, and the entire temple system, and it's extremely elaborate, is all fulfilled by him. And so when the undercover boss shows up, he discovers that these people care more about their building program of the temple that's been going on at this point for 46 years, and it goes on for about another 20 years after this takes place in the timeline. They're concerned about their building program, and they're primarily concerned about lining their own pockets financially, much more than they care about God or worshiping him. So what would happen at Passover time is people would come from tremendous differences to worship God and to pay their temple tax. And they were supposed to bring what was currency for them uh, often, uh, oxen and sheep and pigeons for sacrifice. And this would be just, if you think about it with me for a moment, this would be a very complicated process if you're coming a long distance to Jerusalem. You'd have to pack up the whole family, You'd have to pack up food and lots of water because it's a hot place. You'd have to bring these animals with you and go this tremendous difference to, distance to go to Jerusalem to worship God. I was thinking about this this morning, especially as cold as it is. How many of you would be here today if you had to pack up the whole family, walk to church, bring food, bring water, and bring a bunch of animals with you? The attendance would be pretty low today. I think if that was the case. So these guys are going to considerable effort. In the scriptures, it's very clear that when people come to worship God, as these people are coming to Passover to do, God expects all the time first fruits when it comes to worship. He expects in the Old Testament and in the New our very best. He expects something that is excellent. This is what he always, he wants to be first in our life. And he always wants first fruits. First fruits, not last fruits. And what we see in Scripture is that worship and sacrifice, as they're going to do here, always go together. You can't really worship without sacrifice. They go hand in hand. And sometimes I will come across people and they'll say things like this to me, I don't have anything to give to God in terms of sacrifice, and I have to gently say to them, that's because you're using, you're approaching this in a leftovers type of manner. And this is what happens when we give to God last. When we give to God first, which is always the biblical pattern, then he will help us order our remaining resources accordingly. And so this is not just about being a good steward, which we're all called to be, or a good manager. It's about an act of faith. And when we give first fruits, it's a very clear way of saying, I love you and I trust you and everything I have is a gift from you. And when we don't give to God first fruits, I was trying to think of a way of illustrating it. Would be like, it would be kind of like this. We invite Jesus to come over for supper. 
And because we have a special guest coming, we invite a bunch of family and friends. And the table has food on it. And everyone has a plate and cutlery in front of them. And when it's time to start eating, we turn to Jesus and say, no, you wait. Everyone else is going to eat. And he sits and watches us eat. And everybody eats their fill. And then when everybody's done eating their fill, if there's any leftovers, we say to him, now you can have some. And this is never the biblical pattern. And so these people are called on to bring their animals, and there's standards of the types of animals they're to bring. They're to bring their very best. And so they would come, and they would come these long distances, and sometimes the people would come, and they would bring animals that were not the best, not up to the standards. And so when you give, there's typically some standards. Even if you were to go and to take some stuff to to the, the Goodwill facilities here in town, they have standards as well, and rightly so. And they'll say things like this, we ask you to bring either new items or gently used items, items that are clean and in good condition. And so they would come to the temple to worship at Passover time. And there would be some people there in charge of the temple facility and the worship that was to be going on. And as the sacrifices would come, they would evaluate the sacrifices and they would say, yes, that's an appropriate sacrifice, or no, it wasn't. And as this was taking place, they began to think about this and they thought, Well, here's a business opportunity for us. And what we will do is we will provide a service to these people that if they come all this distance and their animal isn't at the standard that it needs to be at, we will save the hassle of them going all the way home to get another animal or going somewhere else to get an animal, and we will provide the sacrificial animals for them at a cost. And the people would say, you know, I want to worship God. I sincerely want to worship him. Where can I buy one? And the people in charge of the temple said, well, it just so happens that we have some animals you can buy. But what they began to do is charge an exorbitant price, over-the-top price for these animals because the people were cornered and they had no other option. Now, I don't love you, but... Many years ago, I was at Disneyland, and I like Disneyland, but if you go to Disneyland and you want a churro, have you ever bought a churro in Disneyland? You know, you can go to Taco Bell and get a churro for like three bucks, but if you go to buy a churro in Disneyland, it's like 198 bucks, because they know they have you, and there's, you want the churro, but there's just nowhere else to buy the churro, and so you got to pay like 198 bucks for your churro. And the temple had become like that. Eventually, they began to say, what if we started rejecting basically every animal that came and said they all have to buy their animals from us if they want to worship? We could get very well financially if we did that. And so all these godly people are coming, making this long journey to the temple to worship God. And they have very carefully raised this animal with worship and sacrifice in mind. And they have prepared this animal to be a sacrifice. They're trying to be humbly obedient to God. They want to do it right. 
And so they take their very best, and it's extremely inconvenient to make this trek. And when they get to Jerusalem, they're rejected. And they're thinking to themselves, well, I don't want to have to cart this animal all the way home. And the temple people would say, well, it just so happens we can take that animal off your hand because I know you don't want to have to cart it all the way back. Now, of course, there's going to be a charge for us taking that animal, and we will pay you 25 cents on the shekel for that animal. And everybody in the temple system was taking a cut. And we read this story, and we begin to understand the background of what was going on. And we think to ourselves, these guys are horrible. I can't believe how far off base they've gotten. They've totally gone off the rails. So let me ask you a question. As we come to worship, am I really sacrificing? as I worship? Am I coming with a generous spirit as I worship? Now, those are questions that I need to ask myself, but I also ask as lead pastor, are we being good stewards of this facility, this house of God? Are we being good resource managers of the things that we have been entrusted with, all of which belong to God. As a church, are we fair? As a church, are we deeply generous? Because it says in the book of Hebrews, those that are in leadership in the church will one day give an account. So we ask those worship questions, but we also, as leaders, and me as lead pastor, I ask those questions very seriously. So as the undercover boss arrives, he sees people being cheated and exploited. It's a thoroughly corrupt system. And the thing that's particularly grating about this is that it's all being done in the name of God. All being done in the name of God. Then there's the money changers. Any Hebrew male 20 years of age and older was required at Passover time to pay a temple tax. This was something that was instituted in the Old Testament era. And so they're coming to pay their temple tax. And they're bringing their currency to pay the temple tax. And the people at the temple are saying to them, um, you need to pay your temple tax, but you absolutely cannot pay it with the government-issued currency because it's got the picture of that pagan Roman emperor on the coin. And so we have instituted special temple money, and you can turn in your Roman currency for temple money, and we'll make sure you can pay your temple tax. And we can all see this where this is going, right? More corruption. There's a huge upcharge, an exorbitant, over-the-top charge for them to turn in their Roman currency for temple currency. So some people are thinking, well, isn't this why we should never link spirituality with finances? That is not the point of this passage. It's not a problem that they were generating income. It's that they were doing it in a corrupt way against how God has told them to do it. It's never a sin for your business to make a profit. 
In fact, there's places, especially in Matthew, where you're encouraged to make a considerable profit so that you can be even more generous. The problem comes when it's done in an ungodly, dishonest, corrupt manner. And it's very interesting to me that the point of Passover that they're celebrating from the days when they were in Egypt was to celebrate, the point of it all, was to celebrate and worship God for his deliverance of his people from a controlling, corrupt, oppressive regime that did not allow them to worship God freely. And what we see in John chapter 2 is that Jerusalem has become Egypt. And this is why Jesus, one of the reasons, Jesus is very angry. And the problem always resides in the human heart. Nations and governments and policies, all of these things change. And some people think, well, if we can just legislate, legislate, legislate morality, then it'll all be good. It doesn't work that way because it all boils down to the human heart. And eventually people will find a way to corrupt the system, even if we think we have the perfect system in place. And so Jesus arrives, he takes the time to make a whip, and he says, God must be worshipped, but not like this. Now again, I'm not here trying to beat anybody up. I'm trying to build us up. But understand something very clearly that Jesus is teaching us. Worship is not about you. Worship is not for you. Worship is for God. Sometimes we come with the attitude to church, I want to be entertained. I am the customer. And the people up front there are there to serve me, to provide me with religious goods and services. The scripture is very clear. Worship is not for you. It's not for me. It's for God. And so we look at a passage like this and we think to ourselves, these guys are horrible. I can't believe how bad they are. But I think the question needs to be asked, in any way am I trending towards that direction? Where is my focus when I come to worship? So these guys needed to learn about worship. They also needed to learn about Jesus, beginning in verse 18 through 22. Then the Jews demanded of Jesus, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he had been raised from the dead, he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Jesus, you're here, and apparently you think you have some kind of an authority. Prove it to us by doing a miracle for us. And we can be like this with God, too. Prove yourself to me, God. Do a miracle. Heal me. Show up and do what I tell you, and then maybe I will worship you. 
Now, we serve a miraculous God that's still in the business of doing miracles, but never because we tell him to. Have you ever come across people who are telling God what to do? We hear this a lot nowadays. You come across people telling God what to do, back away very quickly. Not biblical. God never gives up the right to be God. We like to think he does, but he never does. And so Jesus says to them prophetically, you're going to kill me and I will rise from the dead three days later. And they don't get it at all and they think he's speaking uh, literally about the physical structure of the temple as I said that they've been working on for about 46 years at this point and they finish it off in about 64 AD and ironically in 70 AD we know from history that the Romans came and flattened the temple after their big building program was over built with corrupt money. And maybe that's a bit of an indication of what God thought of what they were doing. The center of our faith is not a building. It's a person. The epicenter of our faith is Christ. And this is what he's reminding us here. Destroy this temple and supernaturally I will be resurrected, not revived, resurrected from the dead. Because the epicenter of our faith is the living Christ. Now, I'm glad that we have a building. And we praise God for the church house that he's given us. But we must never make it an idol. You know, that's my parking spot. How dare you park in my parking spot? Or how dare you sit in my seat? This is a house for God's people. That a place that should be known for, for integrity a place where the resources are stewarded well, a place that's hospitable and warm, a place that always points people to the biblical God. So these guys, they, uh, they don't understand worship and they don't understand Jesus at all. Now, some people will look at stuff like this and they'll say, well, this is why a church should not be run like a business. Well, let me just stop right there and say the reality is we do have employees, and we do own real estate. So there's certain things we're required to do, or I will end up doing prison ministry from the inside in an orange jumpsuit. So we abide by the law. And so some elements of ministry has business attached. Now, other people will say, well, the church should just be a family. And that's true as well. But the church should be like a family business. A family business has to be done very professionally, but at the same time, and equally so, in a family business, we love each other personally. We're highly relational. We're loving. We care for one another. But we also manage the affairs professionally and responsibly. The scene in John chapter 2 is not a family business. It's a corrupt business model. So if for any of you that are here that are in business or own a business, understand this. It's not just the temple or the church building that belongs to God. Your business belongs to God. And he expects his business to be run by his principles.
These guys also need to learn about relationships. Verse 23 through 25, it says this. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need men's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. There's four gospel accounts of the life of Jesus, and in the book of Mark, we see a parallel account of this occurring, and it says in Mark chapter 11, verse 17, and as Jesus taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The temple, and I've been to the temple mount, the temple, when it was still in place, um, had different sections or courts. And one section or one court of the temple house was the house of prayer for all nations. And this was the outer court, the most outer court of the temple, which was designated for the Gentiles, meaning anyone who was not a Hebrew, Israelite, Jewish person. And it's a very clear illustration that we see all in the Old Testament and the New Testament as well, that God has a heart for all of the peoples of this world, not just for one people group, for all people. But in this era and when this was written and when this was unraveling here, for a Gentile to worship the biblical God, Yahweh, this was a big, big deal. They had to jump through a ton of hoops. They would most typically have to have come a very long distance from a foreign country to worship Yahweh. They more than likely, in all likelihood, did not grow up in a believing home. They would have had basically no exposure to the Old Testament scriptures. And so for them to come to worship and to pray to Yahweh was a big, big deal. And so for whatever reason, they were converted at some point or they were there seeking the God of the Bible. Where do you think the animals and money changers were set up? Most people that know a lot about this, a lot more than me, assume that it was in the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, because the Jews would have gone, well, we don't want to have those animals in my area. This was another reason that Jesus was so choked. Where does the undercover boss show up? He shows up to see how people from other nations, from different people groups, from different language groups, he shows up to see how they're being treated, and he sees that the temple people have no heart for their soul, only a heart for their wallet. We cannot be like a person coming to our church for the first time that's from a different place. And some people meet them outside the front door and say, yeah, you can come to church, but it's going to cost you a hundred bucks to get in. And oh, no, no, you can't go in the front door. You need to go around back. We've got a little broom closet in the back where you can go and sit. And oh, would you like to have a Bible so you can follow along and be part of what's going on? And the person says, well, yeah, I brought my own Bible. And we say to them, oh, no, 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 you can't use that. You have to use the approved UDAC version, and we will sell it to you for 300 bucks. We bought it for 30 bucks. 
but we will sell it to you for 300 bucks. And you go back in the back 40 and sit in that little room. And if you get saved, that's great, but we really don't care whether it happens or not. And this was the heart of those that were there. When you come here, are you thinking about other people? Lost people? Hurting people? People that are perhaps different than you? We want to be a church that cares and loves and proclaims Jesus in a generous way to all the peoples of this world. And again, I invite you to look at the text and say, God, is there anything you're trying to say to me about how I might be trending in the direction of what we see in this passage? In this passage, Jesus, like I said, is clearly angry, yet he didn't sin. And so some people have this image of Jesus that he's only angry. And then some people only want to imagine, and I think this is a moment is often the most common image of him, that he's only loving and never angry. But if you study the life of Jesus in the four biographies, you see all the emotions on display. And the most commonly, I'll grant this, the most commonly displayed emotion from Jesus, I would suggest, is that of compassion. But it, and so at times he's very, he's very merciful, he's very loving, but at other times he's very intense and in fact aggressive. And so it might be helpful to think of him in terms of the lion and the lamb. In fact, in John chapter 1, verse 29, you can read that he is pictured as the lamb. And when you think of a lamb, they're adorable, they're comforting, they're vegetarians, they never kill anything. When the children come to see Jesus, He's like a lamb with them. He's very gentle. When the woman at the well comes to see Jesus, he's very tender with her. He says to her, God has a better plan for your life than this. To the prostitute, he's very encouraging. But if you were to read Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, which we sang about earlier in the service, which was also written by John, it says, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. What does a lion eat? whatever it wants. Just look on YouTube. They'll take down elephants. They'll eat crocodiles. They'll eat buffalo. A lion basically looks at anything and thinks to itself, dinner is served. And numerous times in Scripture, we see Jesus as the alpha lion. When he's casting out demons, he's not doing it like a lamb. He's doing it like the alpha lion that's in charge of the pride. Usually whenever he's around the religious leaders, they're trying to trip him up. They're doing horrible things. He is treating them as an alpha lion would treat them. And he has this incredibly healthy emotional life where he knew when it was time to be the lion and when it was time to be the lamb. And so people come here in John chapter 2 to worship God. And maybe that's the primary focus of why you're here today. But maybe you also need him to touch you like a lamb. You need his gentle touch. You need his healing. Jesus is here for you. Maybe you need Jesus to be the lion in your life. Maybe you've mistakenly 
been living under the mess that you're in charge. And you need to come to the point of surrendering to the alpha lion, of saying to Jesus, I surrender to you. I'm going to worship you in a thoroughly biblical manner, in a very sacrificial manner, with you in charge, because you are the boss of me. Leaders in John chapter 2 missed worship, they missed Jesus, they missed key relational things in any way. Am I trending in that direction? Please stand.